Hello everyone, Chris Carlton here with another episode of the Study Abroadcast. In this episode, we talk to Jeremy Doty, who is the Director of Study Abroad and Off-Campus Programs at St. Norbert College. Jeremy talks about how he actually started studying abroad when he was in high school. He went to Germany not once but twice, once in high school and then another time in college. After he graduated, he did some time in the Peace Corps. And uh, actually, that was in Ukraine, and he, that's pretty cool stories around that. So, And then we also get advice from Jeremy about how to study abroad if you're thinking about it. You know, the normal good stuff. Uh, we, we learned that at St. Norbert College, you can study abroad for pretty much the regular price of tuition, so everything's equal other than <clears throat> the plane ticket, which is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, he tells some pretty neat stories throughout the interview, and I think that is about it, ladies and gentlemen. Let me know if you have any questions, as always, and uh, we'll turn it over to Jeremy. All right, thank you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Study of Broadcast. Chris Carlton here with Jeremy Doty of St. Norbert College in De Pere, Wisconsin. Jeremy, uh, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. It's great to be on the podcast with you. Yeah. So, actually, Jeremy was recommended to me by one of his former students, uh, Dylan Reister, who also has a podcast episode on the, on the website. And she's now an advisor at Edgewood College in Madison. So you're obviously doing something right up there in De Pere. Uh Jeremy, again, thank you for being here. And why don't we get a little bit into your study broad background and maybe tell us about your first couple of trips and how you got into international education. That sounds great. Well, I should let you know, Chris, that I'm actually from a small town in Wisconsin. Have you ever heard of Hortonville? <laughs> does, does Dr. Seuss live there? <laughs> no. no uh, uh, yeah, no, I've never people, heard of Hortonville. That's what most people think, though. So Hortonville yeah. is a small rural farming community just west of Appleton, and that's where I spent most of my childhood. But for some reason, when I was in high school, I had this strong urge to study abroad. So I hadn't studied German at all, but for some reason, Germany was speaking to me as a destination. Okay. So uh, I actually finished up my high school at a gymnasium in Germany. So I studied for one semester in the northern part of Germany in the small town called Lockstedt. And it was an incredibly difficult experience at first, just because I wasn't very proficient in German. Um, but I lived with a host family. So I had four host brothers and a really supportive uh, host father and host mother. And they really, you know, made the experience quite powerful for me. So when I was looking for undergraduate institutions, I knew that I wanted to continue with my study of German and that I wanted to pair it with international studies. So uh, I've come full circle because I went to St. Norbert for my undergrad as well. And the nice part about that experience is it took me back to Germany uh, and I studied in, in the city of Münster for another semester. So I've actually had two study abroad experiences in Germany. 
Yeah, that's that's kind of a common thread. A lot of people, it's it's hard enough getting students to study abroad once, but what you don't realize is that you're not limited to only going once. A, a friend of mine that's also on the podcast actually studied abroad four times, four separate times as an undergrad. So yeah, something to definitely, especially if you're trying to learn a language. So how is how's your German now? So I still use it. I actually just went back to Germany uh, a month ago for a work trip. Uh, so it was great to be back. I went to Berlin for about a week, um, and it was it was wonderful because not only did I conduct work business there, but I was also able to reconnect with some of my friends from my study abroad experiences. Uh huh. And so you went so, so just to, you went once in high school and then once again in college. Is that, is that right? That's correct. And then okay. once I graduated, I was uh, unsure about, you know, which direction to take my life. So I remember once I returned from my uh, study abroad experience as a second semester junior in college, I was uh, speaking with different faculty and staff members at St. Norbert, and I eventually landed upon the Peace Corps. So uh, once I wrapped up my undergraduate studies, I lived and worked in Ukraine for 27 months as a Peace Corps volunteer. So I was uh, working in this small village called Nova Ushetia, which is uh, in the southwestern part of the country, just north of Romania and Moldova. And I was teaching English as a foreign language. And, you know, the Peace Corps was a really great outlet for me because it combined my passions in international education with my very strong interest in service. So I'm, I'm now a huge advocate of the Peace Corps, and students at St. Artwork know that if they uh, want to explore that as a postgraduate option, that they can always come chat with me. Yeah, right, Cause, and, and most people don't really know what they want to do once they graduate, whether it's graduate school or what kind of jobs you get. So the Peace Corps kind of find, seems like a perfect bridge with that time in someone's life. Yeah, I think so, too, and I always had graduate school on my radar, uh, but I didn't want to hop into a master's or Ph.D. program right away. So I did the Peace Corps, and then I went to SIT, uh, which is the School for International Training out in Vermont, and I did their master's program in international education, and that really kind of prepared me for my future career in the field. Uh, and then what I eventually decided to do was pair that with a Ph.D. in higher education administration from Bowling Green State University. Well, so there's so there's actually a school, it's SIT, the School for International Teaching. Is that, is that what it is? School for International Training. Training. And so can you, what is, I've never heard of that. What is, is that just, it teaches, it, it's for study abroad advisors, it's for people in international education. I've never heard of that before. So it's one of the better-known uh, master's degree programs in the field of international education. Um, since since I studied there, they've uh, really significantly adjusted the structure of their program in international education. But in addition to the IE program, they also have a few different social justice-oriented tracks that students can select from as well. Um, but in terms of my program, uh, the way it used to be structured was one year on campus. So in the first semester, you focused on the theory of international education. And then in the second semester, you focused on the practice of international education. 
And then all students uh, at that point were required to do uh, an internship. So I actually got my internship just back here at St. Norbert. I worked in the Center for International Education as a study abroad advisor, and I completed my thesis project um, while I was working here full time. Uh, so it's a very, very practical program for students who are looking to get into the field of international education. You know, I think one thing that we're seeing more and more is the professionalization of the field. So oftentimes, if I meet with students at the undergraduate level who are interested in becoming a study abroad advisor, I typically point them in the direction of master's programs that will prepare them because uh, it's getting trickier and trickier to enter the field with just a bachelor's degree. Oh, okay. That's, yeah, that's interesting. And uh, what would you tell someone, a student who's maybe thinking about studying abroad and not really sold on it, as far as you know, is the number one reason don't go, but people also are afraid of getting homesick, got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, there's always some reason why they say no. What, what would you tell a student in order to get them to make the trip no matter how far or long it would be? Right. Well, I'm a storyteller, so I typically dip into uh, my past and I articulate, you know, the transformational impact that my uh, international experiences have had on my life. I try to really make my advisees understand that my study abroad experiences, my work experiences, and just personal travel experiences have really altered the trajectory of my life. I mean, I certainly would not be where I am today had I not had some of those rich experiences that I told you about. And um, at St. Norbert, we make it really accessible for students to study abroad. Um, so for any of our semester programs, we take the approach of just charging regular St. Norbert College tuition room and board, and that allows students to use all of their financial aid if they elect to study abroad on one of our semester programs. Right. So, so, good. so, so what makes um, St. Norbert every, – everyone does something a little different, a little special, and what you're telling me is nothing really changes aside from the plane ticket. Is that right? So that's correct. So the out-of-pocket expenses that students typically face would be the round-trip airfare. Uh, if they need a visa for their program or for their host country, they would need to uh, absorb those costs. And then really it's any sort of in-country expenses that they would have. But with respect to tuition, room, and board, we make it quite easy for students here at St. Norbert. So, is there anywhere specific that you guys kind of have, have partnerships with other universities? Do you, do you, are there more exchange programs? Like, what would a typical student do at St. Norbert in order to study abroad? Like, what does it look like in terms of length? Do more, more go in the summer? Do more go for a semester? I, I'm just kind of trying to do that. get a scope of students at St. Norbert and how they're studying abroad. Right. So, our advice to incoming students is they start as early as possible. So we're very fortunate insofar that we have a, an exceptionally strong relationship with our Office of Admissions. So quite frequently, we're able to uh, present information about our study abroad programs to prospective students and their families. So right away, even when a student is considering St. Norbert as a possible option, 
for their undergraduate studies, they're hearing about our robust program. So once they get here, um, one thing that has been quite successful for us is our open office hours. So although we do take appointments uh, from students, uh, we, we typically see a lot of students just kind of wandering up to the Center for Global Engagement. And it helps that we have a really strong culture of study abroad here at St. Norbert. So out of each graduating class, roughly 35% have at least one study abroad experience during their time at SNC. And as you know, that's a bit higher than the national average, which is only about 10% of undergraduate students. I do know that, yeah. Uh, that, that's pretty good. Congratulations on that, Janet. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at national trends because, as we know, um, short-term programs, so summer programs or programs shorter than eight weeks, are becoming much more popular than semester-long or year-long programs. But at St. Norbert, we actually still have more students going on our semester-long programs than on our shorter faculty-led programs during the J-term and, and the summer term. So, so yeah, that's, I've noticed that trend, too. Why do you think that is that more people are going in the summer now? I know it's not at St. Norbert, but just the national trend is more people are going in the summer. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's really because of cost? Um, I think there are lots of variables to consider. So if we look at some of the rigors that student athletes have, uh, sometimes a particular sport, let's say it's hockey, cuts across two semesters. So that really renders them ineligible for one of our semester-long programs. So unless we offer something during the J-term or during the summer, uh, our student athletes otherwise wouldn't be able to fit in a semester-long program. So sometimes it's competing interests on, on campus. Um, in terms of the St. Norbert population, we do have quite a few students from rural parts of Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, and Michigan. So sometimes these students have never traveled outside of the United States before, and they find more comfort in a short-term course that's only St. Norbert College students and led by a St. Norbert faculty member. But what we're starting to see is that we're seeing more and more of those students try out one of our shorter programs during the summer and J-term, and then follow that up with a semester program because they realize that it's not so overwhelming as they initially thought. Wow. Well, again, congratulations. That's terrific news on over at St. Norbert. Uh, Thanks. Now, now, I know you said you were a, uh, a storyteller. Now, do you have maybe a, a story you could tell about your travels? something that you think would you know, lose the audience and get them to take the trip and study abroad? Well, I don't know. It's not. It's less of a study abroad story, and it's more of a Peace Corps story. Yeah. Um, but this is one story that I've told quite a few people before. Um, so it took place during my second summer in Ukraine. So at that point, I had been living there for about any year, a year and a half. And um, during the summers, uh, since I was teaching, um, my schedule wasn't terribly uh, overwhelming or too complex. So typically what teachers do during the summer in Ukraine is they'll partner with other Peace Corps volunteers to organize summer camps and villages across the, the host country. 
So there was a particular week where I wasn't helping out with the summer camp, so I just decided to go for a long walk. I didn't have any particular direction in mind. I just kind of allowed the day to lead me in a in a particular direction. So I had always wanted to kind of discover some of the neighboring rural communities around my village of Nova Ushetia. So I knew that there was this path in the valley that I could take that would lead me to nearby uh, villages. So it was, a, it was a hot summer day. Uh, I had been walking already for about two hours and it was lunchtime and I made the mistake of not really packing any food. Um, but I quickly stumbled across the village and there was a small cafe uh, where I knew that I could get something to eat. And when I walked into the cafe, the villagers said to me in Ukrainian, oh, you're the American. Um, because having a, a Peace Corps volunteer in, in a small village um, kind of uh, is rather uncommon still in Ukraine. So uh, most people do know that, you know, there is somebody from the United States living in the village for a two-year period. So I struck up a conversation with these people. We ended up having lunch together. And as soon as, as I was about to head out, another family came in and they said the same thing. They said, oh, you're the American, aren't you? So what happened is they were actually stopping in that cafe to grab a few provisions for a picnic. So what what happened is they said, well, you know, we're going to um, kind of a rural part of this area to, you know, just hang out, have some food, drink some vodka. Is there any chance that you're interested? And I said, why not? Like, I don't have any plan for the day. Um, so I decided to join them for a picnic. And it was just incredible the fact that you can be in such a remote location, yet you can form such strong relationships with people as long as, you know, both parties approach it with an open mind. And, you know, I like to tell that story because oftentimes students and their families have misperceptions uh, about what the world is like today. Uh, it's often informed by inaccuracies or stereotypes. So it's important to kind of share something like that because I think it shows how good-natured people can be and that although we hear a lot about terrorism and other ills in the news that, you know, when it comes to person-to-person um, -person contact, it can be really, really powerful. Yeah. Uh, there's, as, as far as the safety goes, too, there's a big concern there. And it's honestly, it depends on where you're going to school in the United States, but it's usually safer, they say, where you're going as opposed to where you're coming from. I know, that the, I know that the Forum on Education Abroad recently released a report that had data that suggested that it is safer to study abroad than study on one's own uh, campus in the United States. But I, I don't know that data too well, so you can't quote me on that. You may need to edit that one out. <laughs> okay. No, but I mean, I think we heard the same thing somewhere. Now, can I into a little bit about, you mentioned that you were on a walk and I'm kind of curious about, I've never met someone who lived in Ukraine before. Now, you, you go to Europe and you think of the food, right? They, every country's got, there's Italian, there's Greek, there's French. There's all these countries with rich food history. What is Ukrainian food like? Is there anything 
special about Ukrainian food, or can you can you iterate on that at all? Right. So um, one thing to keep in mind if if our listeners travel to Ukraine is that the food there is going to be very seasonal. And what I mean by that is if you're there during harvest season, you are going to get some of the fresh freshest produce that you can. So in my village, for example, we had a weekly market on Wednesdays and Saturdays. And people who lived um, outside of the village who did some farming on their on their land would come in and just sell their produce. And it's really interesting because in the United States, we would use the terminology that it's organic produce, and we probably would charge the customer a bit more just because it's organic. Well, oftentimes in Ukraine, everything is organic, so there's actually no need to use that word, and they certainly don't increase prices because it's organic. It's just the way that food should be. Uh, so if you're there in the summer, you'll you'll get access to a lot of fresh produce. Now, when it comes time for fall or winter, um, it's it's really difficult to go to, you know, uh, a grocery store in a small village and find something like apples or bananas or a really fresh tomato. So what most Ukrainians do is they'll can their food. So in the in the colder months, you're eating a lot of canned vegetables. You're eating a lot of potatoes, and soups are quite frequent. So it's it's not uncommon to have borscht, which is a beet-based soup, or a potato soup, you know, for for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, it's it's great though because it's it gets quite cold in in the Ukrainian winters. Yeah, yeah, I'd say. Well, it gets cold in Wisconsin too. So exactly, exactly. <laughs> And um, so, do you um, do you have a favorite dish that it might have been in Ukraine, but from your travels, is there something specific that you remember that you wish you could just go to the you know down the block and get that you really can't get in uh, in the United States? Absolutely. So I also lived and worked in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, so I was working at the University of the Western Cape, and one of the foods that I really fell in love with was Cape Malay chicken biryani. So um, South Africa has a really strong Indian influence, but around the Cape Town area and the Western Cape province, there's kind of this hybrid of, of cuisine called Cape Malay, which kind of infuses Indian foods and spices with South African foods and spices. Um, so chicken biryani kind of done the Cape Malay Way um, is one of my favorite dishes. It's very bold when it comes to some of the spices. Uh, one of the key ingredients is garam masala, but then it also has things like um, cumin, uh, cardamom pods, cinnamon. So it's just it's it's filled with flavors and colors, and it's it's something that I try to replicate here in Wisconsin, but it just tastes so much more authentic uh, down in South Africa. Yeah, I've never heard that before. I'm definitely going to have to research that a little. That sounds delicious, too. Absolutely. And um, now, is, is going with the food, it's not like wine, but let's say you're walking into a bar in South Africa or in Germany or in the Ukraine or somewhere you've probably never been yet, but you'll go, what, what kind of drink will you order if you walk into a bar? Well, it's very location-specific, to tell you the truth. So... 
if I kind of position that in some of the countries that we've been talking about. So if I'm in, if I'm in South Africa uh, and I'm in, let's say, the Stellenbosch region, um, it's actually, you know, a great grape growing region and there's tons of wine farms sprinkled throughout the mountains surrounding Stellenbosch. Uh, I've been to Napa before. I've been up in Oregon and Washington. I find Stellenbosch to be actually one of the best uh, wine farm regions that I've been to personally. So if I'm there, I would order a Pinotage, which is a type of red wine that's very local to the Western Cape region. Um, but like when I was in Germany just a few weeks ago, um, I have to go for a Hefeweizen, especially if it's if it's you know during the summer months and it's quite quite hot out. Uh, if I travel to Ukraine, I think my Ukrainian friends and host families would be very disappointed if I didn't have some vodka. So <laughs> it, I would say it's very contextual. Okay, and yeah, I know I know vodka is a big culture so uh, and then also if do you have um do you have a book recommendation that you'd like to give everyone um well you know whenever somebody asks me what my favorite book is i always struggle just because what i'll often do is you know i'll find something before my travels and then take that book with me and read it you know when i'm on an airplane or sitting on a train or something like that so I can at least give you a book recommendation from my summer travels. Okay. So uh, over the summer, I decided to do uh, a small Canadian adventure. So uh, I flew into Calgary, uh, rented a car, and went to uh, Lake Louise and Banff to do some hiking in the Canadian Rockies, and then took a train west to Vancouver. So the book that I brought on that trip is called Educated. It's a uh, memoir by Tara Westover, and it's a really, really um, fascinating read because it really follows um, the life of Tara. And what, what happened is she grew up in rural Idaho, and her father believes that the government um, brainwashed citizens. So oh. you know, with that mentality or with that philosophy, he didn't send any of his children to public schools. So the, the children were homeschooled, but they were homeschooled in a very unique way because their her parents had a philosophy that maybe didn't align with the status quo. Um, so we could say that, you know, Tara grew up miseducated. Um, but she had this really strong desire to um, educate herself, so she ended up um, kind of navigating through an undergraduate program, graduate programs. And it's just amazing to me that she grew up in this kind of isolated lifestyle in rural Ohio, Idaho and eventually got her PhD from Cambridge University. Um, and I think this is something important for the listeners to read because it really speaks to the power of education and it speaks to the power of grit. And a book that I read before Educated was Grit by Angela Duckworth. And I thought these these two books paired together quite nicely. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely uh research those and I'll put um be sure to put them in your interview post as well. Um I asked you before, but what about um 
do you have any website recommendations or things like travel apps or things like that? I know that there's a lot of them, so I, I'm just curious to see if you have any that you recommend. Um, I, I typically download a few apps before I do my own personal traveling. So I went to Spain and Morocco over uh, my, my, my most recent winter holiday. Um, I'm proficient in German and Ukrainian, but I don't know any Spanish. So what I did a few months before heading off on that trip is I downloaded Duolingo, and I just started navigating through some of the uh, modules on Spanish. And I actually found that incredibly helpful because in addition to kind of the personal traveling that I did, I also did some work-related business on that trip. And it was just helpful to have, you know, a basic level of uh, Spanish when I was navigating throughout the country. Um, in addition to that, on my iPhone, I typically keep apps like um, Google Translate, Uber, uh, HomeAway, Google Trips, uh, my Delta app. So those are kind of my go-to. Uh, if I'm meeting with a student, we do kind of um, highlight probably 10 or 15 other student-oriented apps that we think would be really beneficial for them. Um, so, yeah, I think my, my traveling is a little bit different than kind of the, the traveling that my students do since they're trying to be... Oh, yeah, well, well, yeah thanks for sharing, though. Yeah. And um, finally, do you, uh, do you have a quote you'd like to leave us with? You know, that's an interesting question. So it's on the top of my mind because just the other day uh, I reviewed the essay of uh, a student who's applying to the Peace Corps, and she wanted me just to take a look at it and give her some feedback. And she actually started her essay with a quote by somebody uh, that spoke about um, kind of the power of pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. And the feedback that I gave the student was, you know, it's it's nice to use this as a point of departure for your essay, but I'm so curious to know how how you you've actually lived that experience. And my advice to her was to actually not begin with a quote. Uh, I'm much more interested in letting that student be the author of her story, as opposed to taking the direction of somebody else. So because that's fresh in my mind, I don't have a quote to give you because... But that's a very I, good way to answer the question, though. Yeah, you yeah, didn't really have to do it, and you explained why, so that's perfect. Yeah, I think I'm much more of a believer on, on letting us be the authors of our own stories, so uh, I think that's how I'll end. Okay. Uh, and then do you have anything else you want to add or just end uh, like that? That was good. Yeah, let's let's end it like that. I think your podcast is wonderful. I hope a lot of people stumble across it because I think if they listen to the different um, yeah testimonials that you've gathered, they'll learn quite a bit about the field and about the power of study abroad. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy. Again, guys, uh, we're on social media. Also, if you could give us an honest review of show on whatever podcast medium you're listening to, like iTunes or Anchor or Spotify, whatever, however you're listening, I just want to agree with the show. Uh, you can comment on this episode. You can talk to me on social media or contact me via email. Jeremy, thank you again very much for being here, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Chris. All right. Thanks. Bye.